We all think about what we eat. We plan our meals or count carbs or do any number of other things when it comes to what we put in our bodies. But do you ever think about the flavor of what you consume? Sure you do. What we eat or drink either tastes good or it doesn't. In fact, taste is the number one consideration in what we consume. Yet there's more to it than just like or dislike. And there's even a whole industry dedicated to it. Flavor is memory. Flavor is feeling. Flavor is science. Flavor is art. Flavor is Fona. I'm Corey Doucette, and welcome to Fona's Flavor University podcast. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Robert Sobel, Fona's Vice President of Research and Innovation. We will discuss the science behind flavor. Morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, Corey. How's it going? I'm pretty good. How are you today? I'm doing well. All right. Keeping safe, huh? Yeah, trying to the best I can. Well, thanks for joining us today. I've got uh, a bunch of questions here to talk to you about. Basically, we're just going to be talking about what flavor is and why do we use it. So I'll have you introduce yourself and go ahead and go through maybe your credentials and what you do for Fona. Thanks, Corey. Hi, everyone. My name is Bob Sobel, and I lead Fona's research and innovation team. We develop cutting-edge research that is specific to the flavor industry around different areas like microencapsulation, taste modification, and then also taking a very deep dive into uh, big data and data analytics and artificial intelligence. And we bring all of those amazing technologies into our other folks at Fona to be able to put into your products. So I made it into the flavor industry in a very weird way. Uh, Well, at least I think it's weird. I started off my career actually as a chemistry teacher. I taught high school in chemistry and physics for about five years. And one of the beauties of being an educator is you get your summers off. So I thought, but uh, my wife encouraged me to get a summer job. And that's how I kind of stumbled upon phone. It was interesting. One of the teachers in my math science department, her neighbor owned a flavor company. And I just remember it was going on summer break and she popped her head over the uh, little cubicle into my office and said, hey, do you know what a gas chromatograph is? And I looked at her and said, absolutely. Uh, When I was an undergraduate in college, I used to work on gas chromatographs quite a lot. Did a lot of work with repairing them and making them operational for the university. So to make a long story short, uh, I ended up uh, going to Fona and worked that summer, fell in love with it. I knew nothing about the flavor industry, knew a lot about chemistry, of course, but became enamored with natural products chemistry and basically uh, had a wonderful experience, learned exactly what a flavor was, went back to uh, graduate school after that. And then after graduate school, came back to Fona full time and was given the charge to develop a technology program for the company. And so that was, wow, that's like over 20 years ago now. And that's, that's how I got into this whole industry. One of the cool things about my role at Fona, outside of being able to develop new technologies, is this ability to uh, still be an educator. I totally love teaching people, whether they're students or adults, uh, people in the industry, or just even working with high school students and, and college students still. And so that's one of the really interesting things about my role is that it allows me to still get out there and, and educate folks. Of course, I'm educating them on flavors and flavor technologies, but really that's uh, that's one of the really unique things about my role at Fona. So I still get to do the research, but still get to satisfy that need to uh, be an educator and a communicator. So, Well, you're definitely educating us right now. Uh, <laughs> just out of curiosity, what is the gastro? What was that? It's a gas chromatograph. What does that do? <laughs> what is that? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Uh, so chromatography in general is a relatively newer area of science. Uh, it's the science of separation. And when I say newer, it's about a little over 250 years old. Um, and it was actually developed by uh, plant botanists, monks, um, 
about 200 so years ago, they were trying to really understand the colors in leaves and why leaves would change color during the different seasons. Chromatography gets its name from chroma, meaning color, because that's where it was discovered. It's the separation of pigments. But chromatography is the science of separation. And so how does that relate to gas chromatography? Well, gas chromatography is the separation of gases. And why is that important to flavors? Well, because 99% of all flavors out there are going to be semi-volatile or volatile. And so if you're going to analyze them, you have to find a way to separate those individual components. And so that's what a gas chromatograph does. Uh, and like I said, flavor, you smell it, uh, it's a gas. And so that's what we use them for, to separate all those different individual flavor components so we can identify them. And that, going back to kind of how I got into the industry, that's the angle that I came into the industry at is being a separation scientist being a chromatographer, being able to take natural products, essential oils, essences, botanicals, flavors, products from the store, and separating out all of those individual components, identifying those components, and then understanding how much of those components were in the product so that a flavor chemist could then build up a flavor from that. So very technical background for me, my counterparts on the flavor chemistry side, the flavor chemist, really spend a lot of time understanding the science. I don't know a flavor chemist that is not scientific at all, but also being able to bring that art element into understanding how you make that complex mixture again, but using the tools within the laboratory and creating that flavor that way. So that's what a gas chromatograph is. Corey. All right. Well, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, so far you've touched on a little bit of what makes a flavor. You talked about the gases and whatnot. So let's expand on that. What exactly is flavor? What, what am I tasting? What am I eating? What's, you know, is there a difference between flavor and taste? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, that's a great question. And the reason why it's a great question is because it's a little bit of a linguistics thing that's happening around language. So we sometimes, and, and it all leads back to this concept of neurobiology that's happening for us. So we say that things taste great or wow, that's got like amazing flavor to it. And really what we're talking about is the fact that certain things have different tastes and taste typically for me and for probably for the definition of this podcast is going to be something that's really more along the lines of something that's perceived on the tongue. So you have the five basic tastes, sweet, sour, bitter, salty, umami, that happens on the tongue. Flavor in my opinion, is something that is really perceived on the nose. It's an aromatic component. And when you think about what flavor companies do, they're really making aromas that go into food products. If you're putting something like a sweetener into a food product, that's not really flavor per se. But why is it a linguistics thing? And why do we use these terms interchangeably like flavor and taste? And it's because of the way that the brain processes all this information. Flavor itself speaks to the emotional brain. In fact, when you look at how the brain structures are set up, we have this amazing part of our brain called the limbic brain. Uh, it's responsible for emotions, it's responsible for memory, and it's responsible for smell. And it's a very old part of the brain. So if you kind of look at the human brain and kind of how it's evolved over time, you, you kind of look at it like a city, you know, and there's very old parts of the city which help with survival. And as we grow and evolve as humans, these other brain structures have developed, which are newer parts of the city, like our logic brain uh, or the logical part. Neuroscientists would call it like the prefrontal cortex. But that's where we can do language and we can do higher order logic processing. So when we look at the different senses, sweet, sour, bitter, salty, umami coming from the tongue, your sense of sight, 
hearing and touch go to more of the logic part of the brain for processing first. Your sense of smell goes to that really old part of the brain, that emotional part of the brain, and it speaks to your emotions. And it can be amplified in your memories because of that connection between emotion, memory, and smell. And so when I think of flavor, I'm thinking of the aroma or the smell of food. And when you look at the overall impact of perception of a food product, about 90% plus, depending upon who you talk to, some folks will say it's 80%, 90, 95%. But that really is related to the aroma side of things or the flavor side of things. And that's what's happening when we have food and flavor and flavored products. So let's let's ask kind of a more relevant question at this point in time. I'm seeing a lot of people who have had COVID or whatnot are losing their sense of smell. And I'm seeing this weird experiment that they say has worked where they take an orange and literally put it on the burner of a stove, burn off the peel of the okay. orange, eat it, and then somehow miraculously they get their sense of smell back. Does that sound feasible? Does that sound like clickbait? What, what are we talking about? <laughs> Wow. Well, I, I haven't seen that. That sounds very interesting. And uh, as soon as we get done with this podcast today, I'm going to go research it because that's what I do. And I'm not an expert on COVID uh, and coronavirus. I understand that depending upon the pathway of which you get the uh, the virus, um, you know, if it goes into the nose and we know that like even with like the common cold, which is, you know, for all, it's a virus and can have a big impact on your sense of smell, your olfaction. I don't know how that process would bring back your sense of smell, which is why I'm going to go research that. What I know uh, to be true is that, you know, the virus is trying to replicate itself, whether it's trying to replicate itself in the sinuses or in your lungs, wherever that spike protein on the virus can go into a cell and transfer its RNA and then duplicate itself. You can see that that can cause a lot of problems. And so, in fact, folks that maybe lose their sense of smell, it could be actually something happening right there with the uh, odor receptor cells. But it's interesting that you you talk about that because the sense of, of flavor or taste loss happens, especially right now when we're in cold season, cold and flu season. And the reason for that is how the nose is set up. And, and we just talked about how flavor is very, very important. But when we talk about how the nose is set up and, and how odorants go to be perceived, it's very interesting. So the odorant goes into your, your nose and it interacts with this mucus layer. And in that mucus layer, there are what we call olfactory epithelia. I hope I'm saying that right. But they're these little cells and they're sometimes we call them odor receptor cells. So if you think about this, you get this little molecule going into this mucus, that's snot, you know, when we think about it. And it's going into that and it meets up with these little proteins. And these proteins are called odor binding proteins. And they got a very specific task. Their task is to take these aroma compounds up to the odor receptor cell. So it's a, a couple different steps going on here. So if you think about it, you got an aroma that goes into the mucus and then this odor binding protein, which acts like a taxi cab or an Uber for the aroma compound. And it takes it up to the odor receptor cell. And then it binds with the odoreceptor cell. And then that sends that information to the brain and it goes straight into the limbic brain. And then you, you perceive that. Now, if you have a cold, your body is going to produce lots of mucus. That's why you blow your nose a lot, you know? And the reason for that, one of the reasons for that, for that response is to constantly flush that area in the nose. And why would you want to do that? Well, because the distance between the odoreceptor cells and the brain is separated by a small little piece of bone called a cribriform plate, very, very thin. 
and it's very porous because all of these, there's like 6 million, 6 million otoreceptor cells that are sending information to the brain. It's, it's amazing. Well, if you think about it, if that's a very thin, porous little piece, and it's the only thing that separates the outside world to the inside world of the skull of the brain, you're going to want to flush that thing like crazy if you've got a cold because you've already been compromised. And so when you are sick in the wintertime, regardless of, of, of COVID, you're overproducing mucus to flush that region. Well, when you're doing that, you're losing your concentration of odor binding proteins, those little taxi cab guys. And so things don't taste as great. We say that doesn't have a lot of flavor. And that's because of what's happening in that region of the nose. And then it comes back. But I'm very interested, Corey, in researching that. I'm kind of, I usually pick up on a lot of these different things that are going around and I, I didn't see that one. So I, I definitely want to go back and research that. It's very interesting. Absolutely. So, we'll be excited to, to hear what you find yeah. or what you think. Yeah. So I'm obviously we're hearing a lot of the sense of smell has a hard impact on, on flavor. Yeah. So how do we make a flavor that can be tasted no matter what? Is that possible? Hmm. So I guess my question is, are you asking, you know, is it possible, like, how do we replicate a flavor? Like what nature is doing? Exactly. How do we make that happen? And that really, really, really depends upon the talent of the flavor chemist, understanding what is necessary in that system to make that flavor happen. So, okay, that sounds kind of cryptic. What does that all mean? Well, let me unpack that for you. So there's a lot that's happening. So when you, when you look at what's happening in nature, and what nature creates flavor-wise, it's it's incredible. If you go and you grab any natural product, whether it's a fruit. So we're going to go grab an apple off of a tree. We're going to bite into that. And we're going to experience just a crazy amount of flavor compounds. Like you analyze that on, on the gas chromatograph. And you're going to find out that it's going to contain thousands of different compounds that nature put into that apple. Thousands of different compounds. We're, we're, you know, A lot of people think that, oh... Things that are natural don't contain chemicals. Everything's got chemicals and everything, including Corey, you're made up of chemicals. Bob's made up of chemicals. Uh, in fact, I did the calculation one time. I think you can buy all the chemicals that make up Bob or Corey minus the water from a chemical warehouse for about $51. <laughs> and you can put them in a big mixing bowl, add water, and, and you, you won't get Bob or Corey. But that's the, the idea here is that everything is made up of chemicals. Nature is super complex. So when you're a flavor chemist and you're trying to replicate what's in that apple, you're going to really need to think about what chemicals are signature to that apple that are critical to defining that flavor profile. And so where am I going with this? And, and how does this all make sense? Because what, what I just did there was tell you nature's super complex. Flavor chemists have to pick out the right components to put into their product. And it's not like a flavor chemist is going to go and grab well, maybe they could, 1,200 different ingredients off the shelf and blend them together to give you an apple flavor. It doesn't happen that way. And the reason it doesn't happen that way is that the flavor chemist knows the neuroscience of what's going on. And the neuroscience says, I don't need to have all of those chemicals. I don't need to have all of those items in a certain ratio to get an apple flavor. What I need to have is just enough of the right compounds to create the image of what's going on with that apple flavor in my mind. This isn't just flavor, this is how the brain works. And the brain, one of the leading cognitive theories out there is called information processing theory. Information processing theory states that we as humans take in information from the day we're born and we synthesize it. 
And we're synthesizing that information based upon survival. And when there are things that are important in that information, we hold on to them. Things that are maybe not so important, we don't use them as much. So the example that I always give, a real life example too, and thank goodness it doesn't happen anymore today because it would be weird. But my, my, I've got two daughters and my wife and I used to, you know, we still go to the grocery store, but when they were much younger, we used to go to the grocery store. And on occasion, my three-year-old would, would run up to an older gentleman and grab that person's leg. And mind you, this older gentleman looked exactly like my dad, their grandfather, with some subtle differences, of course. And they grabbed that guy's like, grandpa, you know, and then all of a sudden he would be startled and the daughter would look up and hold on, hold on a second. This isn't the reaction I'm expecting. This isn't grandpa. And in that moment, this is really, really cool. What happens is the brain takes that information of this new experience and scaffolds it into the old experience so that she creates a more refined model of what grandpa is and what grandpa isn't. So how does that relate to flavor? So at a very early age, in fact, our feeding behaviors actually start before we're even born. We start to develop our palate and our, I wouldn't say our likes or dislikes, but what is being fed to us through the womb. And then when we're born, we develop that. And, and there's research, really, really cool research out there that shows that the depth of the palate of, of the mother sometimes can determine the different foods that the child will like. And so if you ever wondered why maybe you're just dialed into like one specific area of food and you're not adventurous, I'm not saying you should blame your mom, but that's a place to possibly look. So getting back to how does this work? So at a very early age, we have experiences with flavor and flavor products, and we start to build in what makes an apple flavor an apple flavor in our brains. Okay. And there's a lot of critical components. So you could take a 1200 ingredient apple flavor from nature and maybe bring the resolution down to 700 ingredients. You're going to say, well, Bob, you mean flavor chemist is going to go grab 700 ingredients off the shelf and mix them all together? No. Flavor chemist is going to look at what is in their toolbox that is probably natural, natural extract, natural juice, you know, all these different ingredients that have the complexity that nature has in them. And they're going to start to blend them together. What we know is that you can still get the semblance of an apple flavor in some confection products, like a Jolly Rancher, like a, a green, a sour apple Jolly Rancher. I think it has like 32 chemicals that make up that flavor profile. And you still can get the semblance of, of an apple coming through. So that's what the flavor chemist has to do is they've got to be able to know what critical components must be in there to effectively communicate to the consumer that that is an apple flavor. So I hope I answered the question. And I apologize if I go off on like these crazy tangents, that's just... I mean, it's a complicated science and there's plenty yeah. of questions and stories to tell here. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, so you've mentioned that the flavor scientist has a lot to do with picking out those key ingredients that's gonna make that flavor. And you said that, you know, there's no way they're gonna pick, you know, 500 or however many flavors off the shelf. What tools do they use to make up these flavors? What kind of, um, I know you have a, an electronic nose, for example, okay. you know, what other tools are there out there and, and how, how do those help? There are a lot of tools out there. The one thing about flavor chemistry is that it is very much what I would call an empirical science. It's a trial and error science. And anyone that has been a student of innovation knows that there's a lot of different innovation models and 
probably one of the classic models um, and not the most efficient models is like a random walk method where you try and change a bunch of different things. You're making a flavor, trying to make a pineapple flavor. You're going to change a bunch of different compounds, try and, and, and make that pineapple flavor happen. Before we had things like gas chromatographs, electronic noses, electronic tongues, other forms of spectroscopy, GC olfactometry. Before we had those things, the flavor chemist really had to spend a lot of time doing that random walk method. And, and we're talking, you know, 1930s and prior flavor chemistry was very heavy in just rapid prototyping. Uh, and it was a very lengthy process. In today's day and age, you can go and grab a product from the store. You can go and get an apple off of a tree and in a very short period of time, and by that, you know, the greater part of maybe six hours or so, you can elucidate exactly what's inside of that apple or that product and share that information with the flavor chemist who then can go ahead and get a backbone. And in some cases in today's world with artificial intelligence as the backbone of different e-nose, e-tongue, GCMS systems, you can get the flavor chemist further, faster, more accurate. And, and it's, it's really, really cool. Amazing. You've touched on the history here a little bit, the 1985 and, and with that information. Can we go further back? When was the, that somebody, you know, a Neanderthal, you know, decided the taste of cooked meat is better than this raw meat? How yeah. far back do we go? I mean, it, it goes back, you know, a, a long way. I don't have like specific examples, but I think when you look at where the flavor world has come, it's been an evolution. And it's not just an evolution of maybe a hundred years, it's it's thousands of years. I mean, when we look at the spice trades, I mean, that was, I mean, it still is a primary flavoring ingredient. I mean, you, you think about it. I mean, why do we put spices in the food products? And if you think about it, you know, why why do we spice up food if if it's two thousand years ago? Well, if you think about it, I mean you have some fresh meat after two or three days sitting out, it's not going to taste so fresh anymore. <laughs> so what you can do is you can add stuff to it, like spices, to en enhance it and mask some of those carrion kind of rotten flesh profiles. Cook it. Cooking cooking is an awesome advent for, for mankind because it essentially prepares the product to be processed or digests much easier for us. Same thing with fermentation. And all of these different areas have led to different flavor formations. You know, if you look at fermentation, for instance, you know, I mean, we can look at fermentation for alcoholic beverages, goes back all the way to the ancient Sumerians, you know, and, and using that as a way of creating not only a, a, I almost said stimulating beverage, alcohol could be maybe a stimulating beverage sometimes, but a, uh, a beverage that had some other quality to it. But there are a lot of flavors that are being generated during that fermentation process. We can look at different cheeses and why would we inoculate certain cheese, like blue cheese, you know, with different bacteria to create different flavor profiles. It was a way of enhancing it. And, and don't get me wrong, there are foodborne materials out there that can really, really harm us, you know, pathogens that can really, really hurt us. But that class of pathogens is much, much smaller than all the other bacteria out there that bring a lot of flavor to food products like kimchi, like sauerkraut, like wine, you know, and provide that profile that we're looking for. So it has been something that has developed with humans over time. 
it speaks to the emotional brain again. And the emotional brain is that emotional brain uh, and the memory component with it really, really creates this dose and response. So we give ourselves something that tastes good and then we constantly go back for it and go back for it and go back for it again. And it kind of builds itself into different cultures. And that's the unique thing about flavor. Uh, and I feel like we're going off on a tangent here, but let's do it, is that every culture kind of has its own cuisine and flavors and ways of preparing food based upon how that society developed over time. And it's very, very different. And what we know as humans is that most of our developmental mind pretty much like crystallizes. It doesn't mean we still can't learn, but crystallizes when we're like 25 years old. And so the culture that which we live in and defines in many cases our palate is, is pretty much locked in when we're about 25 years old. So if you want to try new food products after you're 25, be ready to get some interesting responses, you know, positive or negative. But that's kind of how this whole flavor thing happened over time. And the spice trades, people fought over spices. People died over getting flavor into food products to create new experiences. And, and some some of these ingredients, you know, are more precious in price than, than gold. So instead of comfort foods, people have comfort flavors. Right, right, absolutely. All I can say is pizza is very comforting for me. Yes. And there's a reason why. <laughs> it's my old brain telling me I must have had a good ex good experience well, with that perhaps. Or? Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's a couple different angles you can look at that with. The one thing that I would, I should let everybody know, I, I don't like tomatoes. No, I like tomato sauces and I like ketchup and I like tomato products. But man, if you put like a, a tomato, like a, specifically a cherry tomato in front of me, that's not going to go well. When I was young, and this kind of goes back to the whole emotional piece, you know, like I said, you can have positive emotional experiences and you can have very negative emotional experiences. And when I was younger, probably about three or four years old, I remember this in my mind, my dad gave me a cherry tomato to eat. And I looked at that thing and I thought that that was a grape, a red grape. And so in my mind, I had already biased myself thinking that was going to taste like a grape. And so when I put it in my mouth and I chomped down on it, I was shocked in a very negative way. And so to this day, I know it sounds like very um, childish, but I, I don't like tomatoes, slices, whole tomatoes, cherry tomatoes. But when you said that pizza is like comfort food, you can look at that in a couple different ways. Let's look at it from the gastronomy standpoint, the, the molecular gastronomy. What's going on in pizza that makes Corey, Bob, because I like pizza too, um, I ate way too much over the holidays. Mm -hmm. um, you look at what pizza's made of, and it's made of a bunch of different things. It's got bread. Bread has, uh, depending upon how it's been, leaven, usually with yeast. It's going to contain yeast, and yeast we know has proteins in it, and they can trigger the umami response in our, on our tongue. That umami response, the brain sees is protein. See, the whole tongue is structured around survival. I don't know if a lot of people know this or not, but that's how our tongue is. Uh, it's, it's all about survival. If things are sweet, we like them because the brain sees sweet perception as energy. If things are sour, we typically don't like that. Uh, and if you don't believe me, if you've got like a youngster at home, get a wedge of a lemon or, or a lime and give it to a, a two-year-old and you get a very interesting response. And that's because typically things that are sour have had bacteria on them. Remember those pathogens? We don't want to get those in our body. Well, the tongue has developed to 
get rid of things that are acid in nature because most bacteria, when they act on food products, make acids, which are sour. And so we want to get that out of our body at a very early age. Uh, bitterness. Bitterness is, uh, man, you could, you could talk about bitterness for like a whole semester's worth of a college class because of how complex it is. There's 25 different types of bitter taste receptors on the tongue. It's a very, very diversified class. Reason for that is there's a lot of things in nature that are really bad for humans. And so it's good to be able to sense those, those things are bitter. So it's good to be able to sense those things that are bad for you and have a negative response to them. So bringing it back to pizza, umami. That's that savory. It's the Japanese word for savory. And a special class of compounds like glutamates, inosates, ribotides, these compounds trigger that umami response. The umami response in the tongue sends the brain a message that says, there's protein here. Okay, so we just talked about survival. So we know that we need energy from sweet things. We got to stay away from sour stuff because it's could be potentially bad for us. Bitterness is usually bad for us as humans. Umami is going to be protein, which we need to survive. And so that's why we have a very strong like for umami. The last one I didn't really talk about is salt. And salt can be controversial, especially over the last 60 years, a lot of people, and I'm not saying it's the research is good or bad either way. What I can tell you definitely is that if you are on a no salt diet, you will not live very long. You need sodium in your diet. Now, does that mean that you need to have an insane amount of sodium in your diet. In fact, the United States is not the number one consumer of salt in, in terms of like, I think the average male in the United States consumes about two teaspoons of salt a day and it's all in our food. So it's not like you're dumping table salt on everything. You, you might be, but I believe it's Kazakhstan. The average male in Kazakhstan is like twice that amount, which is an incredible amount of sodium. So what I can tell you is general rule of thumb is, you know, all things in moderation, including moderation sometimes, but that when you look at salt, you do need salt in your diet. And the reason why I say that is the salt helps regulate the sodium potassium channels for muscles. And it's an electrolyte for the brain. If you don't have sodium in your diet, the brain doesn't function very well. And so we have a very strong liking for salt. It's also one of our most sensitive taste responses. So getting back to pizza, glutamates. Well, Maybe, Corey, you like your cheese and, oh, and yeah. tomato sauce, but oh, nothing yeah. else on it. I don't know. Tomatoes themselves, even though I don't like the tomato, but the sauce contains natural glutamates. In fact, the, the actual tomato seeds themselves is where you see the highest concentration of glutamates. Glutamates, natural glutamates, equal umami, that savory feel. And so when you are eating that pizza with the tomato sauce, you know, and you don't need the pepperoni to bring the umami. You got the, the sauce there that's doing it. It's giving you this richness factor to the food, causing it to be almost like a comfort piece. And I want to say, and I don't have the exact numbers, but I know it's a lot, the cheese, the cheese you put in that pizza has like three times the quantity of umami compounds than the actual sauce itself does. And so you put those two together, the tomato sauce and the cheese on top with some of that yeast protein going on in, in the in the dough and it's like a match made in heaven it's just amazing it's that's comfort food mm -hmm. so that can be a little bit challenging though when, when you think about all the different folks you know you talk about the east coast you talk about the, the midwest you can even go out to the west coast and and to some of the islands in the pacific where they have pineapple and their pizza but the one thing that kind of holds all of this together is the aromas that are generated in the tomato sauce 
In fact, that's why you can have like national brand pizza places because they have a standardized sauce, which gets rid of all the irregularities in overcooking, undercooking, adding too much sausage or pepperoni to a pizza or green bell pepper. It's the sauce that brings it all together and helps give a consistent experience. And that's something we didn't talk about, but the brain really likes a consistent experience. It doesn't like change a lot. And change makes a consumer think and have to formulate an opinion on something that maybe they're not wanting to do. If they want their, if they're wanting their Jolly Rancher to taste the same time and time again, and then you give them that something that's been a little bit different, they're, they're not going to like that. And it's going to create that negative emotional response to that product. That's one of the biggest reasons why we like that, that pizza experience is because of the protein and the umami response that we're getting. Now, every culture on the planet has some form of umami that they build into their their products, their products, their cuisine. <laughs> if you look at, obviously, pizza, we just talked about that. We can say that that came from Europe. We can look at things like uh, spaghetti. You know, think about it. It's tomato sauce again and throwing a bunch of Parmesan cheese on top. And it's a truly amazing experience. We can go to Southeast Asia. We can look at things like miso paste, soy ferments, like soy sauces and stuff, bonito flakes and fish, you know, all have some sort of umami response to them. And then you come here into the United States. We love ketchup here. It's actually the number one condiment. I think the last five years that salsa has taken over that space. But once again, look at those two products. They're concentrates of tomatoes. You're going to get that amazing umami response. That's why when you go into an all-night diner and you see a, a couple sitting down and they got like this plate of French fries in front of them and they go through like a whole container of ketchup, it's because of that umami response. They just totally fall in love with it. For those of, those of you that are listening that love bacon, bacon loaded with, which, you know, if you look at things like sausage on a pizza, you know, it's just another source of umami compounds. Pork in general contains large quantities of different umami compounds. So just not the protein, but specific compounds that can trigger that response. Then I'm definitely going to blame those umami compounds for my firm belief that any pizza is a personal pizza if I try hard yes. to believe in myself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Bob, I'm going to do a little segment here where I, I'm I'm going to talk about ask you questions about you specifically. Okay. So let's let's do what, what's your favorite flavor? My favorite flavor. This is one that I don't know. I mean, it's not like you go to the shelf and grab this. I, I guess maybe a better way of saying it is it's like a dish. My favorite food is a dish called chicken paprikash. And this is a Hungarian dish. My grandmother used to make it for me all the time when I was much, much younger. In fact, it's something that is kind of core to my family. She was um, born in the United States of Hungarian uh, immigrants back in like 1913 was when I think she was born. And that is just an amazing dish. Uh, that flavor is just unreal. That dish is very simple. She would joke around and call it peasant food, <laughs> but it's just amazing. So it's basically, I mean, what, what it is, is it's, it's chicken. And this is another one of those ingredients that's very specific to a culture and to a cuisine. Uh, so it's chicken, onions, paprika, lots of paprika in that dish. And then to balance the paprika and the onions, they usually use some sour cream, which is another fermented food product. And alongside that, you have these nutcles, or sometimes you call them dumplings, that you put this kind of sauce on and eat it. And just very positive emotional experience around that food product. And it's 
it's interesting because like nowadays and, and going back to that emotion memory, flavor, emotion and memory, the limbic brain, when I go back and we usually make that dish in my family at least twice a month. And it's funny because depending upon how it's made, you know, and it's subtle differences each time. But sometimes when I make it, it's almost like my grandmother is in the room because it's just spot on to the way that she would make it. And why would I even say that? Well, because of that memory mapping, uh, the emotions, positive emotions of the dish, bringing back the memory of the way it tasted when she would make it, which brings back the fond emotional memories of her. And so there's this very deep connection between the emotional piece and our experience as humans with other humans. That's why when you may have a loved one that wears a certain perfume or cologne, and when you smell that perfume or cologne, you're, it's like they're there in the room with you. And it's that because of the aroma, emotion, and memory piece. And the funny part about it is people have a really hard time describing that. And, and sometimes guys get yelled at because we don't share our emotions. Well, here's a, here's a little bit of news. Um, so the brain and the way that the brain is set up the limbic brain is separated from the language brain. And we don't have that wiring. Like humans are physically not wired through the neurons to be able to, to talk about emotions that way. That's why when you go to the emergency room uh, with a broken arm, the nurse doesn't come up and say, yeah, so tell me about your pain. You know, because you're going to sit there and you know stumble as you're trying to explain it because you don't have that logic to limbic system connection, the language to the limbic system connection. So what do they do? They usually bring out like that little place card with a bunch of emotional faces or emoticons or images, you know, and they will say, rate your pain. And you look at the face, depending upon smiling, not smiling, like tears, and you point at it. And that speaks to the emotional brain where you, you can speak to that pain that you're feeling. And that's kind of the same thing when we talk about flavors it makes it so difficult to talk about flavors and how to describe flavors even because we don't have the language set up. And really, uh, it was about 1975, I think, when science of sensory was kind of formally recognized by like IFT or IFT published a bunch in that area. And we saw descriptive analysis and this was giving consumers, it was giving scientists a common language of descriptive terms to describe the emotional experience of flavor. So that's my favorite food, chicken paprikash, very positive emotional experience. I'm sure, Corey, what's your favorite food? My favorite food is very linked to a positive experience with my yeah. mother. Um, my father's a chef and she, but she did all the cooking. Okay. Um, she was the one who involved my sister and I in cooking. So my favorite food is shepherd's pie. And it's, it's really simple. And I mean, it almost links back to your peasant food. It feels like that, yeah. but it was, my mother would do, you know, just seasoned ground beef, a layer of cream corn, peas and mashed potatoes. That was it. Yeah. I love it. My wife hates it. My daughter is still on the fence. So I'm really trying to push for that. But according to what you've already said, if my wife doesn't like it, we may be out of luck with my daughter. But yeah, it's definitely that because I was always in charge of mashing the potatoes. So I was okay. the, the kid with the big masher just masher. going at it. <laughs> so which which actually brings me to another question is, so we've established that probably your least favorite taste or flavor is tomatoes. Is that is that true or is that? No, you know, I it's more for me, that's more about the experience and the texture thing mm -hmm. and how my brain has mapped that out. Mm -hmm. Very emotional, never going to do it. I teach the flavor one one-on-one class at FONA through Flavor University. And I remember being in a class one time and 
kind of went around and people were saying what they didn't like. Uh, we had one person that could not stand uh, ground beef and the flavor of ground beef. We had another person, and it was because they had a very negative experience with it. They ate a bunch of ground beef one time and had a very um, not so positive experience later on because of food poisoning. But on the other side of the fence, we had somebody else that um, did not like to drink screwdrivers. That's uh, vodka and orange juice. And you didn't need to go too far with that person to find out that it was because they just overconsumed that one night. And that whole experience, just the thought of that makes makes it to where they wouldn't like it. So, but the, the good news is for your daughter, there's still hope. There's still hope. And, and, and here's, here's what you can do. You can make a very positive setting, very positive emotional setting for her while she's eating the food. You'd have to do that for some time. It definitely takes time to, to kind of, we call it training the brain, but it's the plasticity. The, the human brain exhibits neuroplasticity, which means that it's able to reconfigure itself around likes and dislikes. And this isn't like some sort of new, you know, pop psychology type of concept. I mean, neuroplasticity has been around for a very, very long time. In fact, you know, you can go all the way back to the, um, to the Greeks around neuroplasticity. You know, Aristotle talked about it in, in like 350 BC, uh, how the brain exhibits plasticity up to a certain point where a lot of the memories then get kind of catalog crystallized. So you'd have to go through and have very positive experiences with her with that food, and then she would start to like it. Um, but it takes time. To give you an ex idea, it would take, you know, if you were to look at the, some of the research out there, you know, she'd have to consume it over the course of maybe nine months. Done. Not, not every day, but have a positive emotional experience over the course of nine months, and then it would be a good food product for her. I hate to say that your wife is a lost cause, but each time that you have a negative emotional experience, with a food product, it kind of goes against the, the positive buildings that you've had with that food. But if she was committed to working on this together with you guys as a family, she could build a positive or a neutral hedonic for shepherd's pie. Nice. So it is possible. Balloons and Elmo every time we have shepherd's pie. Yes. Done. Yes. So Bob, we've been doing a lot of talking about likes, dislikes, you know, flavors, what makes up a flavor. So where does Fona fit into all this? Where does a flavor company why is a flavor company important to my likes, my dislikes, you know, distributors, people who make food, so on and so forth? So I think it, I think it goes back to the, to the population, you know, the population growth and the accessibility to foods. You can make your shepherd's pie and that could probably, I don't know how long would you keep it in the fridge for? Oh man, <laughs> there is no, no, I'm kidding. Yeah. Maybe a week or so. Maybe, maybe a week or so. Maybe the potatoes start to turn a different exactly. color and then you're like, eh, we're not going to have this anymore. So there's a lot of challenges there, especially, you know, when, when you're looking at, you know, something that takes a long time to create and, and don't kid yourself. Like when you're cooking at home, there's a lot of things that you add in. Like if you're going to cook a dish and you need chicken broth, you're not going to sit there and make chicken. Some people will, um, but the most of us will go and get a can of chicken broth. Okay. And so that's where you see the necessity for having flavoring because it's just not chicken broth. I mean, there's other food products out there, other ingredients, other things that we add that bring the flavoring piece, you know? So flavor companies like Fona exist because we have to be able to reproduce what nature is doing for our consumers so that they can have that consistent experience time and time again, has to be reliable. You know, that reliability component needs to be put into it. And then there also has to be that cost effectiveness. 
put into it too. And so those are kind of like the three big ones flavor versus, you know, what a flavor company does, you know, you know, people use flavor for product identity. That's one of the big ones. We have all of these different food products that we have grown up with that like the Jolly Rancher again, you know, just thinking about a Jolly Rancher right now, my mouth is, is slightly expecting, you know, that mouthwatering appeal of a Jolly Rancher, even though I probably haven't had one in about two years, you know, so that's, that's one piece of it. You might use a flavor for the consistency piece. We talked about that with pizza, you know, all the different, you think about a pizza shop, whether it's a mom and pop pizza shop or a, a national chain, there's a lot that can go wrong in making a pizza. Just look at all the permutations of all the different ingredients and all the cooking parameters. And the one thing that brings that whole thing together is going to be the flavor that standardizes that tomato sauce. Because even the sauce itself, the tomato sauce could have variation from season to season and where it's grown, where the tomatoes are grown. So to standardize all of that, you can put a tomato flavor in there that helps make that consistent, make that consistent. It brings consistency to the product. Consumers like a consistent product. That's why you use a flavor. You know, you can increase the shelf life, not of the product after you cook it, but you can have accessibility to different flavor profiles um, in food products, whether it is going to be something in, in a can of chicken broth, or it's going to be some sort of spice or flavoring that you, you get at the store or, what's being put into a food product. You know, you can have products that last and extend past that three days of shepherd pie in the fridge or having to, you know, freeze it. A lot of times you use a flavor to replace ingredients, cost and availability. You know, everybody, you know, everyone talks about how, oh, we, we want, we want that premium one fold Madagascar bourbon vanilla that vanilla flavor, that signature flavor. In fact, the global standard of vanilla flavors is a one-fold bourbon vanilla from the Bourbon Islands. Well, that's one small part of the planet. And if everyone on the planet wants to have that experience, you're just not going to have enough vanilla from that part of the world to, to meet everybody's needs. What do you do? You go, you talk to a flavor chemist. That flavor chemist from a company will develop something that is not distinguishable from that material that natural material and you can get that same experience and still have the accessibility to that product we can look at replacing different processes and once again it, it kind of goes back to the ease and efficiency piece you know you could have a barbecue pit you know where you're making ribs all the time and you're smoking those food products but not everybody out there has 12 hours to smoke a set of ribs or or a brisket you can add a thing like a smoke flavor into your, your food products to give you that same experience and not have to go through all the work of doing that. In the pharma world or even in the health and wellness performance nutrition world, a lot of those protein shakes, a, a lot of those pharmaceuticals, like uh, I'm thinking of like ibuprofen and stuff, in the liquid form for kids doesn't taste so great. You can use a flavor to cover up or mask those undesirable flavor attributes, those malodors or mal or off flavors, you know, you can use flavor to supersede that. And so that's another reason why you'd want to use a flavor. But at the end of the day, the flavor, it's going to be the signature of that food product of that pharmaceutical of that protein shake you're drinking. And so it's important to know that it's a very complex creature. There's people out there that have this, they got it under control. They're called flavor chemists and, and they work at companies like Fona to help enhance and enrich your life.
And so, and that's really what, what it comes down to. Awesome. Well, I got to say, you know, thanks to those flavor chemists, you know, yeah. I mean, you guys are doing a fantastic job. The science here is, is real and almost immeasurable. I mean, we could go on for a long time, but on behalf of Fauna's Flavor University for our first Fauna Flavor University podcast, we want to thank our special guest today, Dr. Robert Sobel. We hope you tune in next time when we'll be talking to Fauna's own Pamela Oscarson about flavor radar and what's on the horizon of the flavor frontier. Until then, the flavor of Fauna is the flavor of life. So go out and taste it.